Bedford. Welcome to this week's version of Heads Up, a show about mental wellness. I'm retired school counselor Sue Mullen, and with me today is my friend and colleague, licensed family therapist Diane Baccarello. Welcome back, Diane. Thanks, Sue. Great to be here as always. Hard to imagine that an entire week has gone by since the mm -hmm. last episode, but that week flew. It really did. I couldn't believe today was Friday again already. I know. I'm happy to report that despite the week going by quickly, I actually remember what we were talking about when we were here last. <laughs> and, yep. And I am uh, ready, ready to roll. Uh, I, I know that we have been joking with uh, Bill Jennings, our producer, about <laughs> our lack of script. And sure. I don't know whether or not it makes him a little nervous, but, uh, but, but I, I like keeping him on his toes. So I agree. last week we were talking about anxiety and depression in adults. Yes. We had arrived at a point where you referenced something known as the four R's. And then of course, as we, I was trying to guess what those four R's are. We added ours, so now I don't know. We might be up to six ours, or uh, but we had introduced the concept of refueling as something that is important mm -hmm. when you're trying to manage anxiety and depression. Right. So we could probably add to the R's like we did live. I think we added the word relax, which is kind of part of refueling. We were talking about those who are introverted versus extroverted and how charging our battery or refueling has to really match what works for us. One kind of behavior could be like worth $5 in our emotional bank account or a refueling account. And one could be like a $50 type of deposit into our account. Right. So the main idea is to be adding those deposits, things that charge our battery, whether that's a, a reading a book or, you know, watching a movie or going, uh, being around people, which obviously during COVID times makes it difficult for some, mm -hmm. but it's also minimizing withdrawals you know, that are really draining us. We can't, we can't avoid withdrawals in life, obviously, but we do need to be aware of where our bank account level is, if you will. Well, and I, I, I mean, I know uh, from living through it and frankly, watching you in it, mm -hmm. that when you're part of the caretaker generation, yes, so you've got younger people that are depending upon you, Mm -hmm. uh, a relationship maybe that you're in, older people that are depending upon you. Exactly right. It's easy to run that bank account down to zero That's and right. all of a sudden you've got nothing to give. Yeah. And, and yeah, the, and, and the circumstance calls for you to be present. So exactly. what do you do then? So our, if you imagine our individual accounts and then we have joint accounts right sometimes with a relationship those family members friends uh we have to put deposits into those accounts and most banks i don't know we could ask like you know if you have an individual account that's not very thriving or uh, vibrant it's going to be tough to open a joint account with two that don't you know or maybe even um in the red so we have to be mindful that our individual account needs to be um 
you know, above a certain amount. And we just need to really focus on what our deposits into our account and for refueling, recharging, relaxing. We have to really know ourselves well enough to know what works. And um, sometimes we really need to hone in in a crisis mode, right? Where it's the big ones that the big $50, $500 ones. Um, as we know, it's not just about saving, but it's about not depleting as well. And right. so- I think that um, when we are faced with a lot of withdrawals, it just means we need to make a lot more deposits. The bottom. Right. right. And last week, one thing we uh, talked about was how important that second R, which we indicated was relationships. Yes. How important that second R is in that replenishing. That, yeah. you know, th- skills that we all need to, to learn, and some of us are better at it than others, but sure. asking for help, mm-hmm. acknowledging that we need something, uh, sometimes that might be the company of other people, other times it might be needing to be alone. Exactly. But being in a relationship and being able to say, hey, listen, this is my experience. This is where mm-hmm. I am can be critical, correct, to somebody's sense of well-being? That's where communication really comes in. We need to be able to be good at communicating and not suppressing what's going on for us, but being able to be open to um, knowing for ourselves at an individual level and then communicating that to the people around us. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if you've heard of love languages, you know, the idea that there are different languages that people communicate in. And it doesn't have to just be love. It can be um, just about connection languages. Mm-hmm. So with love languages, when I work with couples, there are a variety. There are words of affirmation. Some people really thrive with that. There's acts of service, you know, taking out the trash or doing the dishes, whatever that might be. Gift giving is one of them. Um, Quality time spent together. Um, Physical touch, you know, some people really huggers, you know, and some people don't really want to be touched. It's more of like a withdrawal than a deposit in some sense. Um, So we are all very along those lines of what works for us. And we really need to tune in to not only works for us, but what works for our relationships for the other people in our life. Because I might be a hugger. Yes. And you might be, uh, you know what, I really don't want you in that bubble. I might be the verbal, like I might thrive off of the verbal affirmation, that kind of thing. So um, the reason I bring that up is we have to know the people around us and they we have to communicate what we are. I think what naturally happens is people tend to do what they are. Mm-hmm. So that's not necessarily going to work for that other person. Right. In fact, it could be sort of irritating in some ways for somebody else if they're like, you know, this is not the thing that I need. This is what I need. So we just have to figure out what those things are. And that can help with um, connection, with relationship, and also with recharging as well. When you work with couples, do you, uh, is it as simple as encouraging them to ask the other person what it is that they need at any given time? Well, it's really like stopping to think about of all the different types, which one are you, right? Each person. And then what are some examples in life that, you know, exhibit that you're doing those things and also helping to have some understanding that if that person is doing these things that they like, it it may be because they are 
thinking that you might like them too. And so they are at least trying, you know what I mean? To make an effort. So we reframe a lot and then we say, okay, well, you're doing this. It's inserting one behavior for a different one. In relationships, there's self-care and then there's selflessness, right? So you might not love lobster, but the person that you're with might really love lobster and might just get right into that. You know what I mean? And you might be like, but you love that they love lobster. Right. You know what it I mean? doesn't mean that you don't ever go to a restaurant that has exactly. lobster. Right. You adapt. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So the word adapt brings us to one of the next R's, which is resiliency. Right. That's where we were. Yes. That was our leave off point. And I feel like we both have some really solid stories and um, experiences around resiliency and why it's so important for our teenagers and adults. Yeah. uh, You and I have been talking for decades about how important it is. Uh, Our conversation has generally been about young adults uh, or older, older kids or young adults, how important it is to experience challenges and discomfort Yes. To successfully manage it and then to be able to look back and use it by saying, well, if I was able to figure out how to get through that, then I am resilient enough and likely to get through this. Exactly. It builds hopelessness or hopefulness, I should say, Mm -hmm. which is the antidote to the hopelessness, which is really commonly associated with depression and angst and turmoil, right? So psychologically having hopefulness and a sense of agency and autonomy is really important, psychologically speaking. Well, and I I can't uh, tell you how many... um, families that I worked with myself, where the poor parents were so overcome themselves by not knowing how to manage either the anxiety or depression of their own child, that we would get into the discussion about what's more important and more effective. Teaching the person, be it the parent or the child, how to adapt to the environment or forcing the environment to adapt to the anxiety or depression. Exactly. And even though it might be easier, you know, I classically use the example with you of the the kid who's afraid of fire drills. Yes. And the parent comes in and says to me, "Um, my son is afraid of fire drills. I want every time there is going to be a fire drill, I need you to let him know that it's coming and, And ultimately you have to arrive, or at least I felt obligated to arrive in the conversation at the point where I say, you know what, Mm -hmm. I can do that this week because I'm going to help you by telling you that I'm going to do it this week. Right. As we move forward, we need to be thinking about the fact that if you're in the movie theater, nobody's going to tell you that the fire alarm is going to go off or if you're at the mall or if so we need to look at strategies rather than just ways to avoid the stimulus. I, I that is a perfect example. I couldn't agree more because it's a daily 
thing that we build that that's muscle. It's like a muscle that we're strengthening and we can't just do, do it during times of crisis. Although there are times of crisis, it's like a major workout, right? But every day we need to have it as a part of our lifestyle uh, because let's face it, work life is p- really full of adversity. It's full of challenges. It's full of stress. You know, we're not going to keep any of that stuff away. What we need to do is learn how to adapt and cope with it and be stronger in terms of that resiliency. Yeah. And I love that. I love what you've just said about not being able to call it up on demand in an emergency. Yeah. And so if you've practiced, you know, dealing with the little slings and arrows of daily life and, and helping kids learn how to problem solve, helping adults learn how to problem solve, then it's memory. It's, and you can call on it and it's there for you without much thought. And just think of how reassuring that is at an empowerment level, just as you were describing, if I can do this, I can do this, right? It builds this sense of capability and self-esteem, all of these things that are really important for us to be strong at an emotional and psychological level. And it feels real. It's transferable to your point. You can't just do it in one area and create this like microcosm around it. We have to be able to transfer those skills. That means we have to actually have an internal locus of control and not just an external locus of control that's dependent on somebody else or someplace else, because that's actually the very thing that helps the person feel capable and genuinely feel um, resilient is not needing somebody else or something else. But of course, asking for help, drawing on our resources, the people around us, but not needing that person in order to say, I need this person to feel okay, or I need this thing to feel okay. Because then our, again, it's external to us. Mm -hmm. And then we need that thing or else what happens. And then that's where anxiety has been worse. Yeah. Hey, so how many um, how many people do you think genuinely have some sort of um, strategy or process that they go through? I mean, I'm thinking about times when people are forced into situations where they have to say to themselves, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. How often do you think that happens that people are experiencing self-doubt that nobody sees Mm. and they've got some sort of gimmick that they use to help ground themselves. I think it happens all the time. I think that that's to be expected in life. It, It can come up for some people. It comes up less than others in terms of that needing to have self-affirmation, which again is one of the coping skills or strategies that we practice in order to acquire. And we're having that kind of a conversation, which is encouraging. It's just that some people um, have that happen much more often. And I'm talking like potentially on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. That's where that persona layer that we talked about in a show previously where one of the the authentic self was in the center and then we had the ego and then the persona layer and then the outer layer. So persona isn't all bad. It's not that we, you know, we don't want to put a lot of energy into thinking that's our real self, but we can pull up a persona layer and sort of act as if for a little while, right? That helps us to kind of buy some time and, and practice a situation. And we might practice and say, oh, we kind of blew that or didn't didn't like how that sounded. Right. But 
you can practice again. That's the thing. So the persona layer can give us a little bit of courage, a little bit of um, separation, protective separation to yeah. try something um, and to convince ourselves, if you will, that we, we are, you know, I think one of the things that I sometimes encourage people, if their self-talk is low, if they're just really struggling with the bravery or the courage to like lean into a situation, um, I often say instead of over-preparing or overthinking or trying to be, have everything exactly the right way mm-hmm. before you do it, mm-hmm. it's all about just show up. Just three right. words, just show up. Right. It's scary, but if that's your goal, I remember the very first session I ever had with someone was in grad school and my um, supervisor said two things you need to do. One, schedule the next appointment, mm-hmm. which, you know, hopefully yep. that, that's yep. what happens. Number two, breathe. Because again, you, you just kind of freeze sometimes, right? right? And so they would encourage us grad students to just breathe, show up, breathe, and schedule the next appointment. That's it. Anything else that happens in between, we'll work it out. We'll figure it out. I told my kids over and over and over again as they were growing up, fake it till you make it. Yeah. You know, if you, if you think you, if you act like a superhero, then maybe if you're in a situation where you need to be a superhero, you can just go with it. Yes. Um, I, I love this conversational line of persona versus reality versus, and I'm going to suggest to you that we do a whole segment on that concept of who am I, you know, the the authentic self. uh, What's the difference between my inner, my inner perception of myself and my outward presentation? Yes. Uh, Because I think that's pretty fascinating. But before we do that, I want to touch on the fourth R. What is resiliency was number three. What is the fourth R? Well, it ties to exactly what you were just saying. It's about being real, Ah. right? So if we can establish what what our real is and Mm -hmm. also allow um, the people most sort of connected to us, closest to us, if we can show what our real looks like to them, then they're able to also establish, you know, if we're talking about trying to establish what kind of language or communication really does it for us, what really connects us, if we're not being real about that, we're putting a lot of effort into connecting to something or someone that's not even like doing that for us or for this relationship, right? So we're putting deposits in that are going into the ether. I don't even know where they're going, right? right? right. But they're not going into our account, And so it's not actually working. So that happens sometimes when parents aren't, you know, we have to get to know our kids really well, who they are, Mm -hmm. not just what they're doing. Um, And we need to do that with ourselves, obviously, as adults. And we need to do that with our adult relationships. Yeah. I wonder um, in in this time of COVID, um, you know, when you when you sit around uh, at book club with your friends and mm-hmm. you talk about the fact that a lot of people aren't real, that mm-hmm. a lot of people or they're not perceived as being real because it's all sort of that social media presentation of life. Everything's wonderful. And, you know, all I'm doing is jetting off and having these wonderful experiences and being promoted at work and my kids are the best on the block. And then COVID came. Yeah. No one could leave their house. There, the measures by which we determine whether or not life is great 
Yeah. Vastly changed. So true. So now all of a sudden, you know, real is uh, who's volunteering to take care of the little old lady at the end of the road. Yeah. Who's um, willing to put the mask on or uh, go to the you know grocery store for somebody or whatever. It, it all, it, it all changed overnight. And I would think that it would have been hard for some people to go from mm-hmm. you know, my, my life looks great. Yeah. To there is no look. There's no look. We had to get real. Yeah. 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 So that impact definitely affected all of us to various degrees. I agree that the further away from real that we were sort of before COVID, the more difficulty that some people had, Um, I think more on the depression end because there's the external feeding loop of like some of the social media stuff to help us sort of um, sort of like at Foxwoods or something, how those machines are set up and wired to have bells that go off and colors and all these things that are like stimulants for the brain. Uh, We get dopamine responses and stuff like that. Those feedback loops shifted, right? Right. Yeah. And so the, the one we had to create other loops. And in some cases, I think it actually, some people are, um, and I, I say this term because it's true. Some people are not only just surviving, but they're thriving through COVID because right. they are um, actually saying, hey, these things that I've like been doing, I can transfer and use, you know, now in in our home, you know, like with the people who are around us, because I don't have to start figuring out what that is. You know, I don't have to right. put effort, extra effort. Everybody has had to work differently and sometimes harder, you know, during these times with like shifting their work scenario and kids being home. Listen, gyms closing down. Oh yeah. Huge. The aspect of, uh, of gyms closing yeah. for some people was so huge because right. Yeah, their 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 sense of well-being, which was around the exercise they were able to do at the gym. Yeah. Suddenly it was like, oh, wait, I, I can put a mat down and do this in my home. Exactly. So the resiliency. Exactly. So the resiliency piece is where this conversation again is kind of connecting around again, because people who can adapt and adjust and say, yeah, the world is in over because I can't go to the gym anymore. What can I do that still will like help my body physically? And uh, how can I make an adjustment? People who are able to sort of think on their feet and um, cope and make a shift are the ones who will um, fare better through crises. And we do know physically, there's even uh, evidence showing that um, with different physical illnesses, people who have higher levels of resiliency um, have, you know, um, better outcomes outcomes with cancer, um, with type two diabetes, um, with gastrointestinal issues, um, you know, and so we just know that there's a linkage to that. Um, so all across the board, it's important, you know, that we really focus on why resiliency is the key to health and wellness in a lot of ways. Um, one other thing to mention about that is, um, the idea that if we can instill these kinds of qualities and skill sets, it's a learned behavior resiliency is, right? It's not just something genetically that we're born with. So that's really good news because we can, we can increase 
we can't increase our IQ very much, you know, maybe six, 7% if we study really hard on an SAT to take it again or whatever, but emotional quotient, the EQ, EQ, yeah, Mm -hmm. that we can increase by 30, almost 40%. If we work really hard at creating behavioral strategies and, and coping strategies, we can increase our EQ and the idea of success in life satisfaction in life with is very strongly paralleled with a high EQ. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Yes. Um, And and again, you know, sort of connected to that idea of relationship building, resiliency, learning how to relax, able to reach out, you know, all those R's that we've been talking about. It's interesting because when I was a brand new counselor, yay, those days back before there were automobiles and electric lights, um, I I had a mentor, Dr. Jack Slidoff, and I can remember saying to him, how can I, I mean, there are so many kids, so many families, so many problems, you know, how do you figure out where to start, what to do? And he said to me, the most important thing you can do is be with them. Mm, not, not do for them. Yes, it's but true. Be with them. And, you know, so when we're talking about people being real and the relationships that are essential to being resilient, um, I think it's important for us to remember that sometimes, you know, simple, simple can be the foundation for a lot of great things. I could not agree more. I love the, the B with them, capital B, capital E, because if we can be, and again, if we can be in our authentic self, especially when you're with teenagers, they can sniff out inauthenticity better than anyone. So they, they help us keep um, our real factor high. And Uh, if, if you're having a disconnect and struggling with that, you might have to look at that, right? You might have to really say, am I being with that Mm -hmm. person? And let's not work, feel like we have to work so hard. We can be with a person to your point. And, um, that serves a very tremendous purpose. Um, we also can, uh, be more observers, just slow Mm -hmm. things down, being a little more quiet. My, my grandfather from Vermont, um, used to always say silence is really, really important. And I agree in the therapeutic process too. There are times I want to jump in, but I have to hold myself back and just be silent. Let it sit for a bit. Let the person come to it on their own. We have to do that with our teenagers. But he used to say, um, if, you, if you're going to break silence, it better be something really valuable to say because silence is really important. And I I was, you know, I think that is, I think that is sage advice. Yeah. You're going to be shocked to know that we are coming in on uh, a minute of time left together today. <laughs> I know every time. Uh, and, but I think, um, I think this is a great introduction to our ne- next episode, which is really going to be all about that authenticity that helps us not only be better people, you know, for others, but also how to draw the center back to ourselves. So thank you for your time this morning. Of course. I uh, wish you a great weekend and I will see you next week. Sounds good. Thanks, Sue. Oh, take care, Diane. You too.